Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with Sherry Thompson about how taking calculated risks can really pay off in your career. Welcome to The Indispensables. I am so privileged to have as our guest on this episode, Sherry Thompson. Uh, Sherry is the Executive Vice President and Head of the FHA Housing and Healthcare Business at Walker and Dunlop. Uh, we go back a number of years, and uh, I am thrilled to have you on. Sherry, welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. The privilege is honestly mine. It's um, listening to your podcast and all of the other great people that have been on. I, I'm in awe and incredible company here, so thanks for the invite. Well, uh, they're an incredible company being in your company, in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you're exactly the kind of person I've been trying to introduce listeners to. Uh, real indispensable go-to people who stand the test of time. So uh, let, let's uh, let's start at the beginning or wherever you want to start. Uh, but I always ask, you know, what's your basic story? Just how did you get to where you are now? You're you're a senior executive at a zillion-dollar business. Uh, how how did you get here? Well, you know, for me, I, I think it started honestly in high school. Just kind of funny, but my father was the CFO of a real estate company. And when I went to college, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be in finance. Um, but working for that company, um, it was really cool to, to be in the development arm. And, and it was um, heyday of lots of parties. And I was young and influenceable. And um, I thought I wanted to be a developer. So I went into real estate as my major, um, which at the time now, there's a lot of real estate programs. But but we won't say how old I am, but back then there weren't that many. But when I came out of college, it, it was the first real estate recession. So um, there wasn't a lot of development jobs out there. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to just find a job in commercial real estate lending. I didn't know much about it at the time, but figured I'd try my hand. And um, I had some really great mentors and sponsors um, throughout you know, my career, which we can talk about, which helped me to continue to grow. And I've just continued to try to push the envelope a little bit, um, do things that are a little outside of my comfort zone, take some calculated risks, which have led me to what some, if you look at my career, would say was an unconventional move to come to Walker and Dunlop, but has been really um, great for me personally and professionally. What? Why is it an unconventional move? It was unconventional because I'd spent most of my career in a very um, small relative to the whole commercial real estate lending area, which is Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac multifamily and healthcare lending. And so I had, I had really built a reputation. I had built um, relationships. I had experiences and understanding of how those products and services worked. I came to Walker to move into the FHA world, which is still housing and healthcare finance. It's different programs. It's different way it runs. And so it was the opportunity for me to, to move into actually managing the whole business, but it, it did require me to, to 
start over a little bit again in terms of building the relationships in terms of understanding the nuances of the programs and and how to look at the business because they're they're different businesses and have to be looked at and um in how you run them a little bit differently. So people who, who are, are uninitiated, uh, you're, in all of these cases, you're talking about lending. Uh, is that right? Yes. So um, Walker and Dunlop's a commercial real estate firm. One of the largest parts of it is is in commercial real estate lending. And I primarily focus on on lending in um, for housing and healthcare, so anything from an apartment building through a nursing home. And these are like, <clears throat> can you say the scope of these of of these deals? They're they're substantial uh, real estate investments, correct? Yeah. So it's it's for owners and operators, people who are getting into the business. We do the gamut of anything from a, what we would call a small balance sheet loan, which can be as small as, you know a million dollars all the way up to billion dollar portfolios and and their various programs offer different opportunities in the hud side i would say your average um, loan is somewhere in the 15 to 25 million dollar range they obviously we do some that are smaller and then they go all the way up to you know 100 million dollar deals and uh, again, for the uninitiated, uh, uh, Fannie Mae uh, and Freddie Mac uh, are federal housing, uh, uh, they're, they're quasi-public uh, institutions, correct? Yeah, they're, don't want to get too technical, but they are, um, during the last, the Great Recession, as we all call it now in real estate, they were um, put under what's called the Federal Housing Finance Administration and which governs them. So they are guaranteed by the government, but um, historically they've been more of an implicit guarantee versus what they have now. FHA is a federal program that's explicitly guaranteed by the government. Um, so these are all uh, chartered by Congress uh, be, for public policy reasons. The government guarantees certain loans in order to make sure that certain kinds of housing and healthcare institutions are can be financed. Is that right? Yes, it's um, they're a very large portion of the financing for multifamily and for healthcare, and it's it's a way to make sure that there is liquidity in the market, and focuses a lot on um, what we would call affordable and workforce housing to make sure that there's um, safe housing for for people that are, you know, need it. Gotcha. And and just for the record, though, Walker and Dunlop is a is a uh, for profit entity. We are. We're a publicly traded for-profit entity. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. And so, uh, but but what you're trying to say is that you, when you moved over to Walker and Dunlop, uh, you had a lot of learning to do and that you had to take your expertise in uh, in finance and be able to apply it in a new, in a new area. Yes. But that wasn't really new to me. Um, even the jobs I had taken before and taken some calculated risks, I'd say, to get there, we're moving from one area. I was for many, many years in, in a credit role, making credit decisions. And then I moved into an operations role as a COO, which is flexing a different part of my brain and learning the business as opposed to just the, the loans. And so it was a natural progression for me to move into running the business. But to your point, it was in a different product type. So it did require you know, a, a steep learning curve. 
And uh, but but uh, it sounds like you're comfortable with that. And what what is it you bring from from role to role, uh, other than expertise in finance and lending? Uh, there must be some uh, carry through that you bring from role to role that makes you kind of somebody who can who can move from one executive role to another and one kind of lending to another. Uh, what do you suppose that is? It's a good question. Um... So I think some of it is I've built every time I've moved on what I learned before in terms of how to manage people. I think that's one of the key drivers um, on building relationships. That's another key driver and on growing staff. So when you're in a credit role, you focus more on a deal, a transaction, one of those loans we talked about. When you're in a management role in the COO or now running this business, I'm focused more on strategic management on growing the business on thinking through strategy and as i've moved through my jobs each place i've been i've learned something valuable that i could take with me to the next role becoming a coo was it was a huge stretch for me um, and it was really challenging but every time i've done that i've looked back and been able to say those stretch roles those things that push me out of my comfort zone have allowed me to get to that next level and bring those skills with me. Yeah, when you're in a stretch role, uh, what's your strategy for uh, for stretching, for learning those new responsibilities, learning those new areas of expertise, for getting to know those new people? Uh, I'm always interested in how, you know, some people, uh, you know, they just... Uh, uh, they muscle through it. Some people uh, have a more systematic approach to that. Uh, what, what's your strategy? So I think my strategies evolved. When I started um, as a COO, I learned so much in that, that job on what to do and what not to do and how to approach learning a business that when I came to Walker, I think part of what allowed me to be successful was taking the skills such as don't come in with preconceived notions, right? Listen to and observe what's going on in the business. Utilize what you've known before to try to build on that and, and get buy-in from people. There's a great book called The First 90 Days that goes through a lot of it. And I, someone gave it to me when I started as a COO and I, I read it a little bit, but I kind of discounted it. But when I started at Walker, I really took it seriously. I went back, I read it and I, I tried to put some of those things into place um, about thinking about how to be a change agent um, in the places that needed it and where it wasn't broken, don't fix it. Right. And so I think those are the type of things that carry through with me as, as a female it's a little surprising for myself that I've that I've taken some of these risks because I, I doubt it a lot. You know, I look back and say, am I qualified to do this? Can I do it? And I think in each time, the answer probably was, you know, I don't have 100% of the requirements to, to do this job, which we know women struggle with that. But I've had incredible support from my family, from some really wonderful women in our industry that have, you know, pushed me to say, you can do this and, and take a chance. And, uh, th that first 90 days, I'm glad you mentioned that because there, there, there's a lot about, 
um, you know, going into a stretch role and, you know, do, do you learn in plain sight? Should you be explicit about uh, learning and realize that um, in, that approaching a new role uh explicitly that you have a lot to learn is not a position of weakness, but it can be a foundation of strength going in as an aggressive learner. Um, and I, I know there are other elements of that book, but that's one of the things I love about that book. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think for me, I try to be an open book, so to speak, and, and I'm not afraid to say, I don't understand that. Or can you explain that to me? I, part of the reason I took the job at Walker is the team that I have underneath me here is incredibly knowledgeable and incredibly skilled at what they do. And the senior leaders of my business that I work with every day, I felt so comfortable with, um, being able to be myself. And so I think that, that, that is an important part is, is if you come in like a bull in a China shop, which believe me, I've tried. It doesn't work. Yeah, that's um, the, that's the. There's a new right. sheriff in town approach. Right. Um, I've I've learned. You know, thankfully, I am a learning being and have been able to improve every time I I change my job. But um, and I've only done it a few times. But but that that vulnerability I think helps people get comfortable. I think you you hear the honest answers, not what you want to hear, and that allows you know, opens a lot of doors for thinking about how to do things and, and, and it builds trust. And I think that in terms of working relationships is critical is building trust and connecting with people. Uh, and trust is, is so critical. And, you know, people talk about, Oh, trust is the foundation of relationships. Um, but it, but it's, um, it's something that, you have to work on, especially if you're new someplace. And if you come in, uh, you know, people are looking and saying, Hmm, why, you know, um, why are you in charge? You know, <laughs> maybe I should have been in charge. And I, th I think you're right. I mean, for me, and I think part of this is a strength as a, as a woman, as well as just my personality is that, um, I try to have personal relationships where it's feasible. I try to earn trust rather than expect it. And I connect on, on shared interest and experience. I like to know, you know, my clients, my coworkers and other people in the firm, their family dynamics, if they're willing to share and, and really try to rejoice in successes and share. Um, when we struggle, we struggle together. So I, I think by doing this, engaging with people, just not when things are really good or really poor, but throughout the course of a relationship helps that. Um, uh, ongoing dialogue and uh, so, so that, yeah, because trust can't be a special occasion, right? Hey, listen, I need your trust. So let, I got to build some trust real quick. Yes, correct. I mean, that that's absolutely right. You, you have to start with the relationship. Yeah. And, and you mentioned uh, uh, that, that you're a, a female executive uh, in commercial real estate. And, um, and I, I want to drill down on that because I know for you, that's not incidental that you're, um, that you're, you've been explicit. You've said that, that that's something you're aware of. I know you've worked on diversity and inclusion. Um, I know that you've been active in uh, uh, women's uh, professional affinity uh, groups and and as a leader in that score and uh, not least of which um, uh, in in your role um, in supporting families in the United States Army. Yeah, it, it is definitely important to me, um, and it's part of the reason I came to Walker was they were offering me the opportunity to run this business and also have an input there. So um, I am 
I'm passionate about changing the landscape, about promoting diversity. Our industry has some work to do um, in both of those things. And, and Walker's been a leader in that. And I've been really proud to be part of that. So so you've mentioned uh, how COVID has been particularly uh, challenging for women. And of course, you know, um, there have been a lot of news reports about that. And, you know, people have been puzzling about that. I can tell you from my perspective, you know, people are puzzling about, well, why is COVID harder for women? And every time my wife uh, hears that on the radio, she, she's like, well, that's not a head scratcher. It's because men aren't doing their share, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, um, but but uh, but 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 tell me your perspective on that. I, I wouldn't say that men aren't doing their share, but um, obviously women take a lot of women take a lot of responsibility of running their households of their children. Um, I was really fortunate. My husband was very supportive, and but even with that, I had just my own innate need to be the mom, right? Um, and so I think a friend of mine who's an executive coach for women, she, I don't know if she coined this phrase, but she's the first person I heard it from. She called it a she session. And and there is evidence and we are seeing that women, women by nature generally don't take the stretch roles. They don't, you know, there's the, I have to know 100%, feel 110% qualified to do a job before I'll consider it. You know, there's all those factors that generally just go into women moving up in the workforce and particularly in our industry. But if you add what's going on with COVID and the additional demands and stresses that have been put on, on women or that women feel are taking just because they feel they need to of running their households, of, you know, homeschooling their kids, of um, taking care of adult loved ones, of taking care of their employees at currently work with them, what we're hearing and what we're seeing is that, that the women are not, are turning down those stretch rolls, they're turning down the next job because, I mean, I imagine it's got to be hard to move during COVID anyway. You're disconnected. You, you're not able to build the relationships the way we just talked about right now. And, and the first six to 12 months of any new job is hard, but you add on the fact that there's, there's, expectations when you start a new job. And for most of us, we also have our own expectations of how we're performing. You know, whenever I go into a new job, I realize the first six to 12 months, I'm going to work a lot longer and harder because I'm learning the business. And so women are self-selecting out of those roles and of those next jobs because they, they just don't feel they have the bandwidth to do it. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I mean, are there, what's your perspective on uh, women um, in the workforce facing unique challenges, you know, regardless of COVID? I mean, is that, do, do you see that? Do you still uh, think women have um, challenges that are different from men? I mean, one, one of the things I've learned from doing the generational research over the years is, you know, you, you, you get, um, uh, young women today when they're in school, you know, they're often, uh, I mean, of course there are plenty who are woke, but they're often not expecting there to still be gender differentials when they get in the workplace and then they get in the workplace and they're like, Oh my God, how is this still an issue? Yeah. I think I'm so in awe of the young women I meet and of their, um, how they think of their tenacity of just, you know, they, they don't have any notions that they're of, of, of what it should be or that there should be that. And so they come in very eager and ready to go. Um, I see it in my own daughter, you know, and how she 
approaches life and approaches her relationships and she's in college, but how she approaches her relationships with her professors. And, but once you get into the workforce, I I don't think there's, um, generally, at least I don't find this at our firm, there's not ill intentions there, but there's just a history of this is the way things have been done sometimes, or there are not as many mentors for women and in our industry. And there's not as much an example. It's getting better, but it's still hard to find um, people that are and, and groom them to get to that next level. And part of it is, I think there's more now men and women that this happened to, but historically, you know, you would have women that um, we, you would be grooming and would you would be mentoring and helping to grow. And, and some of them in a good proportion historically would self-select out because they made the, the conscious choice to raise their family or take an alternative route than to stay in the workforce. Um, today, most of the women that I speak with, they don't have the same, that same thought process. You know, they're in it. They want to be in it for the long haul. They've figured it out probably better than, than we did when we were younger. And I think they just need that nurturing and they need the um, support and they need women communicate differently than men. And so it's understanding how to communicate in meetings the right way, how to make your point heard without dominating or without being called, you know, that bad B word. Um, and, And so helping them to navigate the things that we've all heard about and that really are real there is really critical to, to them being able to stay in and grow. The good news is they're committed to it and they want to learn. And uh, so you said that there's sometimes a lack of role models and mentors. Is that something you make a point of, of doing role modeling and mentoring? I try, you know, I um, definitely, there are people that um, I've sought out and then some have sought me out. Um, and that's, you know, that's been something ongoing for me, but has grown as I've continued to grow in my career. And it's, it's honestly the joy of my, what I hope from a legacy that's there when I'm, when I decide to retire is that there are more women that are at senior levels that have the understanding of, of what we talk about in terms of building the trust and the communication and active management and things that I think can make women stand out. And so I hope so. I hope that that um, that others see me in that way. Well, I would think so. Certainly, uh, uh, anyone would be fortunate to have you as a mentor and uh, would be wise to use you as a role model. And uh, not least of which, um, of course, besides your phenomenal success and your um, uh, expertise, um, I know you to be a, a values and integrity driven person. What, 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 I, I always ask people this question what, what role do, do values and integrity play? in your approach to success? I kind of chuckled to myself when you kind of, when we were talking before and you asked me this question, because from my perspective, it doesn't really fit in. It's the core of how you should act and lead. To me, integrity is that root of leadership. If it's not part of your core DNA, it's going to be very evident to those around you. And it erodes that trust and that partnership that we talked about. And to me, that's really the most important thing to building effective teams. So you say values and integrity. Uh, you don't want to fit that into uh, how you approach your life and career, but rather it should be at your core. One of the things I've asked a lot of people, and I'm interested in your perspective on this, if, if it doesn't come naturally, if it's not in your DNA, 
uh, is that something that you can learn? Or as a leader, is that something you can teach people? My gut wants to say you got it or you don't, but I, I, I have seen leaders and there are leaders that are good leaders that can lead, you know, but to me, if you can't base, you know, trust-based and integrity-based, you can't create that cohesion and, and that team. And for me, the, the team and being able to, everyone, you know, rowing in, this, in the boat, the same stream going upstream together is, is critical. And so I think to some extent you can lead, but I don't think you can be a highly effective leader without it. Um, so, okay. You're saying values and integrity should be at the core of, of what you do. It's, it's gotta be in your DNA. The question is, can you learn values and integrity? I think the way I'm answering the question is from a corporate perspective, right? Um, the army is a, is a completely different entity and, and, to be honest, a lot of what I've learned has been on the back of where what my husband had been taught on the experiences I was able to um, be part of because of his job. And um, I think that all of the things that the Army teaches their senior leaders is incredible and transitions extremely well into corporate America. I think it's an advantage that personally I've gained from that not everybody has that luxury. And so I would tell you that, that what the army teaches absolutely personally helped my career, but also translates into corporate life and it translates into running um, other organizations. I think you can teach the, you know, those lessons. I don't know if you don't have the integrity, if you ever really can figure that out. Um, if it's not part of your core. Yeah, it's a puzzle for me. And I will say that when I'm doing talent assessments, if I run across somebody, you know, who uh, is missing in certain skills, you know, and I'll say to the leaders, okay, this is a development opportunity. If I run into somebody whose integrity I question, to me, that's a deal breaker. And, you know, maybe there is a clergy person out there or a therapist or, you know, or, or, or a general who can teach it, but geez, I don't know. Uh, I, that's not a risk I want to take on a person. If I see an integrity issue, uh, I don't know how you fix that. So it's, it's an ongoing puzzle for me. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I mean, when I meet people and work with them and, you know, when someone shows those type of true colors, you know, you gotta think about it. And, and I hope I'm a good judge of character, but you know, when I, when I see those traits, that makes me question as well. And, and those are not people that I typically want to invest time and money into, um, or that I want on my team. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like, uh, to me, that's like danger. Will Robinson to go back to, uh, an old reference, a generation X reference lost in space. But you know, when I see somebody, somebody who's not honest, uh, somebody who has a fundamental integrity issue, you know, that's, that scares me more than somebody who's physically dangerous even. You know, I just think, wow. I mean, I guess somebody who poses a physical risk in the workplace can't be tolerated. But, uh, but I just, man, integrity for me, that's, that's at the core. So um, I think you can teach a lot of these other skills, right? I, you can teach people how to build influence by, you know, various ways, you know, constructive feedback is an important one. Um, being open and, and vulnerable. I mean, there's all different ways and people can learn those, but at the core, that integrity part, if it's not there, I just, 
I'm the same way. I like the Danger Will Robinson because we're of the same age group. But we, we talk a lot when we bring people onto our team, are they the right fit for the team? And and really, again, you can teach someone the skill set of how to be a good financial analyst or a good manager, but you can't teach them that core thing. And we look for that and we make sure that the dynamics are there because when you throw, it's like throwing a bomb into something if, if you have someone that um, doesn't doesn't have those core values that you, you know, that, that the organization um, really lives by. Um, I think it sort of goes back to the Simon Sinek, what starts with why. Um, which is something I learned from the military and I've used often, which is building missions and, you know, what's the importance of you as a leader and manager and your team? Why do you do what you do? And, and if that core isn't there for the people in your team and the integrity for me as part of that core, then, then it doesn't work. Yeah. I think that, you know, you can even, you can teach someone to, to show up on time. You can teach someone to treat other people nicely. You can't teach someone deep inside to believe that doing the right thing, you do the right thing just because it's the right thing. I, I don't know. It's, it's a puzzle. Um, okay. So let me ask you this. So you have now, how many people are you responsible for in your current role? I have about a staff of about 80. Okay. So that's a lot of people. So how do you go, you know, and that's a huge amount of responsibility and those people, um, uh, this is how they feed their family and how they contribute to the mission of the organization. So how do you go about, uh, building relationships? How do you build influence? Um, what's your approach to that? You, you've, you've mentioned a number of times that, um, that people and relationships are important to you. What's your approach to that? I, I think, as I talked about before, being open, being open for feedback, that's one of the things I really stress. Um, and it's challenging, I think, for people at first, which is, you know, advocating for and delivering constructive feedback and opening to receive the same. So I, I often take feedback from my senior staff on, you know, whether it's how I did on a presentation, whether it's how a conversation went or you know, that, that, so I'm trying to be a learning entity and, and learn, but I think it's one of the single biggest issues I see with companies is you have to create that culture that accepts that feedback where people understand that the purpose is to improve productivity and to help people grow. And, and that obviously then helps the team productivity. Um, but that culture of feedback real time creates the alignment. It creates the trust. It's, it's a really good way to build the influence um, but it really takes a lot of time if people aren't used to it. So I've typically seen skepticism. I've seen worry when we do this at first. I've seen people who think, you know, I'm being told something and they it, it sounds negative. It, even with my managers working on how to deliver it in a way that is not seen as a negative or an aha or a gotcha. But once they embrace it and, and once they start to see that they can advance professionally and financially from their growth, because there are things that become career limiting um, in their job or to the next step. And that if nobody ever tells you that, you know, I don't know how you can fix it. And so, frankly, that's really one of the ways to me that creates the influence is, is, is deploying that into to not only how I interact with my staff, but how they interact with each other. 
So it's, 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 um, but it's interesting because of course being open to input and being open to feedback from others and how you accept feedback, um, is one of the ways to demonstrate your trustworthiness and your, your own character, right? That how you accept feedback, uh, says so much about, about, about a person, um, but also how you deliver feedback. And as you say, uh, being willing to, to tell people uh, things that might be hard for them to hear, but things they need to hear. Yeah. I, I mean, I hope that I'm not perfect by any means. And I think I um, every day learn and oftentimes say, I could have done that better and self-reflect on that or others say to me, this, this would be, you know, a better way to do things. Um, but nobody grows from the feedback of just saying you're awesome. Keep it up. There, I've found times in my career where I'm saying to my managers, tell me, you know, I want to know, I want to hear it. But it's also human nature to avoid being really frank about that. It's, it's challenging. It's hard to do. And so I do think that that's where a lot of managers and leaders, including me, can do better at that. Yeah. And there's something about, you know, uh, there, there, there's no matter how much authority you have, uh, right? I mean, it's become a cliche. If you don't have authority, you have to use influence. But, uh, but I think people get the wrong idea of that. Like some people think influence is being able to get people to do something for you, even though you're not, even though you don't have authority to make them do it. Whereas I think of influence as something that's deeper. It's like, um, my influence lives in your brain. Your influence lives in my brain because really influence is like what other people think of you. And you really have influence if other people want you to succeed, if other people want to work with you. Um, who are the people uh, who whom you think of as influential? Who, who what makes somebody influential for you? Are there people you admire? People you seek to emulate? Yeah, um, you know, I agree with you. I think it's when I think of it, it's it's who's influenced my career. It's people that I trust and I admire um, that have built a reputation on honesty, integrity, and service to others are really the most influential to me. They're the ones I'm trying to emulate. So I, I would say, you know, first of mine, as we talked about, is my husband. I mean, his leadership and his organizational management skills are, are among the best I've seen. And he's really helped to shape me in my personal leadership style He's been patiently a mentor and, and really, if I think about it, an executive coach for me, as, as well as a shoulder to cry on or a, you know, person to bring me back to reality. Um, he's a couple years older than me, so he's always been a few steps ahead of where I was in my career, um, but he's experienced similar issues along his path. And so he's really the one I, I try to emulate the most. I, I'm a poor substitute, but um, when I'm at a crossroads, I always think, what would Tracy do here? And that, that's been an incredible partnership for us um, and a strength in our relationship. What a beautiful thing to be able to say about one's life partner. And um, of course, it is, a, it is a unique advantage to have one's life partner also be uh, somebody who learned in the greatest leadership uh, training academy in the history of the world, the United States Army, and has led uh, uh, a lot of soldiers himself, right? Can I say it? Go Army beat Navy? Uh, yeah, hey, listen, uh, the only branch of service that's never hired me is the Navy. And so, uh, uh, yeah, we're aligned. Go Army, beat Navy. <laughs> He'll like that I got that in there. Yeah, um, well, um, that, that's one thing that's not uh, not going to be um, on the editing room floor. That's for sure. Um, so um, 
what, but what, what's your best career advice? If you're trying to tell somebody, Hey, um, if somebody's saying, how do I, they're looking at you and they're saying, how do I get to be like you? Uh, what's your best career advice? I would say take the responsibility of leading and managing seriously into heart. Find what works best for you. Be honest and open and, you know, work at it every day. Be vulnerable, but but know when you you need to make decisions too. I mean, as a leader, sometimes you have to make those decisions and they're not always the easy ones. The other thing I would say as a female is um, find a support network. I have a wonderful support network of women in my industry. Um, when you ask about who I emulate, some of them are the women that I, I strive to emulate. Um, they have been my female support. They understand the struggles. I love and respect them like sisters. We've grown up in the industry together. We've rejoiced in each other's successes and we've been there during each other's times of grief and sometimes failure. And what's interesting is we're all at competitive firms. We all do the same thing. We respect the boundaries of that, but I know that these women are always there to support me and me to support them. And, and that, that really at the core has helped me to be able to have the strength to say, I can do this and not constantly question myself of things because they're there to catch me when I do. Oh, that's powerful. And and those are, uh, might be peers, right? They, they, they might not be uh, steps ahead of you, but they might be in parallel roles um, or in other organizations. Is that right? Yeah. Some of them are um, a few steps ahead. Some are a few steps behind. Um, and we just grew up together um, and we have an incredible bond that has just been I just feel very fortunate for that. Not, not everyone has that, but as women, I think you do need, and whether it's, whether you're able to develop that with, you know, that's unique, right. But find that, find your outlet, find your, your support network, um, cause you need it and you need to be able to have the conversations and, and the, how would I do this or what would I do? Or how have you seen this? Or as a female, what, you know, how do we, how do we deal with these things? And so I think that's really critical for the success as a, as a female in, in, um, in mostly male dominated industries. Yeah. And you've, uh, one thing I want to also draw a bright line under here. Um, one thing you said to me earlier that you've, you've learned, uh, not to let perfect be the enemy of the good. And that sometimes you just gotta execute, uh, uh, and get things done, even if it's not perfect. Um, and I find um, that that is um, that's one of the things I see. I'm somebody who believes perfect is not possible. So I think sometimes when people get caught up um, on that margin between, hey, this is really good and then seeking perfect, you know, it slows people down and sometimes they don't end up getting enough stuff done. I, I, it's taken me a long time to learn that. And then actually our our CEO here at Walker's one that's really stresses that and has helped me to get there in our president. But I think that is something, especially um, like, you know, every time you go from operational to strategic, every move you make in your jobs gets harder and harder because you're farther away from the day to day and, and, and owning it. Right. Um, and it's hard to let go if you take responsibility because you, you, you're realizing you're taking responsibility for other people's actions and you need to, but sometimes you had no control over them. And so I, I think that 
goes hand in hand with that, which is you got to let it go. You got to realize that you have to make decisions. You have to move on and that you're never going to, if you're striving for perfection, you're, you're always going to be seeking it and never, never reach it. So. And that probably makes it easier to step out of your comfort zone and take on those kind of stretch goals and stretch roles that you were talking about earlier um, and and being able to learn in plain sight and uh, being able to, you know, keep climbing and reaching and growing. I think it does. I think it's also being able to, I'm not shy to say I could have done this better or yeah, that wasn't perfect. Or I made a mistake, which has been freeing to me because it, it allows me to, to do that, to take those risks and know if I mess up, you know, I've taught my people, if, if you make a mistake, you know, there are mission critical mistakes, right. But the general mistakes own them and just learn from them and move on. And I think that's part of that, um, not perfect making. Yeah. It's one of the beautiful things about not uh, being a commander of uh, troops in the battlefield is that nobody's shooting at. I, I'll sometimes say to to uh, to people, you know, thank God nobody's shooting at you, and that uh, you know at least today lives are not on the line when it comes to your work. There's something really clarifying about knowing people for whom you know the work they do lives are actually on the line. I think that's true in healthcare. It's true in public safety. Um, and you know, I often thank God that lives are not on the line for me most days. <laughs> I, I think putting it into perspective, right. And that when you, when you know people that are in that and everybody does today, the healthcare workers on the front lines, you know, if you step back and you put what the decisions you're making into the perspective of what's going on in the world and, and where you fit in, that is kind of that self-reflection that like in the moment, none of us are good at doing it, but, but definitely helps put the perspective there that, that helps to avoid that perfect making as well. Yeah. And, and nonetheless, your work can still be mission driven and uh, you're still uh, helping to make sure that um, housing happens and uh, healthcare facilities are constructed and that the, the resources are there to make those transactions happen. And then, and then good people can still make money in the process. Absolutely. I mean, mission has to be part of what we do, right? We're for-profit business, so there's there's returns that need to be met. But to me, if you don't have that mission-centric, and a lot of that we do talk about, which is providing safe, affordable housing for people, that's a mission that our team, that I want our team to feel really good about, um, and that should drive what we do. Yeah, well, that's a great place to end. Um, Mission should drive what we do. Sherry Thompson, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. It's been lots of fun. Yeah, thank you so much. In our next episode, I'll talk with Romy Parzik, CEO of Vault. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.